That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, everyone. Hi, Tom. Hello, Ben. Um, we're joining you, aren't we? Uh, it's Monday morning. We've, we've had a very interesting news morning. Uh, Suella Braverman's just been uh, got rid of as Home Secretary. And I think the big news so far is that David Cameron's walked up Downing Street and has been appointed foreign Secretary. So it's I don't, by the time the recording goes out, who many, who knows how many more bombshells, political bombshells, may have landed. Yeah, Benjamin Disraeli may have come back by the time this comes out on <laughs> Wednesday. So it's all going to be hopelessly out of date. But we're we're speaking at eleven oh seven. I'm refreshing the BBC new, news website. It is telling me things I read on Twitter forty five minutes ago, um, and uh, that's where we're at. So Lord Cameron has returned. I mean, they say from. It's not even from the wilderness, is it? I mean, it's from the from the political grave. Um, well, it's from the Cotswolds, I think, Ben. <laughs> yes, yeah, not far from me in Chipping Norton. He, yes, he's not That's far right. away from me at all, geographically. Um, but there we are. So, interesting times. Obviously, uh, that brings us on to the, the subject of the policing and uh, remembrance and so on over the weekend and uh, reactions mm. to that. So, Tom, again, I mean, I'm, I'm out here in deep... Not quite rural England, but on the edge of uh, edge of the Cotswolds. What's yeah, it like in the yeah. in the big city? In the big city, it uh, is not a a place I particularly ventured out into over the weekend. Uh, I pretty much kept myself to myself. I figured out. It, I, I noticed. I think Toby went into the into the uh, city area and, and had a picture taken uh, on Remembrance Day itself, on Armistice Day, uh, which was great to see. Um, but I, I woke up and decided that uh, it wasn't for me because I realised just how many groups, how many marches and how much was going to be going on. And luckily, actually, I, I, so I did a bit of spring cleaning, um, even though it's uh, early winter, late autumn. But I, luckily, when I had my first coffee of the day, uh, it was about two minutes to 11, so I was able to have my own moment of silence um, at exactly 11 o'clock from my London flat. But uh, I rather avoided, didn't actually venture out particularly until uh, Sunday afternoon. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I I decided not to try. Well, I spent quite a lot of, uh, as you know, Tom, quite a lot of Saturday in a waiting room. Um, and mm. uh, had no choice but to uh, watch BBC News because that was what was on. And it really brought home, once again, the point that we've been making over the last month or so about the parallel world between if you consume BBC News and you, you know, you subscribe to its 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 status as a legacy broadcasting organisation, the prestige it has, mm. um, and if you've not yet been disabused of that, and you watch BBC News and you, you get get your information from those bulletins, I mean, it's so different to what's actually happening and what's actually being being reported and i saw various 
broadcasters had to take down tweets where they'd they'd mischaracterized events over the weekend um or i think you could say uh, with some confidence been outright dishonest about them um and so it, it was interesting just watching watching that news broadcast you know nothing else to do but wait there while seeing what's being reported on social media and the raw footage of what's actually going on and fireworks being fired at police and that sort of thing mm. um so that really brought home and uh, reconfirmed the points that we've been we've been talking about in previous weeks for me yeah and i i think that uh, we could almost have written many of the bbc headlines on friday night actually couldn't we that the uh, right <laughs> yes. the right wing thugs were going to be out causing trouble uh yes. and and without a doubt they were there, there were groups yeah. of right wing thugs um they they were there uh and we could have written a headline along the lines of a mostly peaceful pro palestinian um protest yeah. Uh, and again, there's a there's some truth there. A lot of people there were were there uh, because they were pro-Palestinian and wanting to protest. But the elements within that, um, for example, some of the you know some of the anti-Semitic chants we've talked about. People were wearing Hamas headbands. I think a man was attacked at one point for holding a sign saying Hamas is ISIS. Um, we've yeah, had references that. yeah, to. That's right. Yeah, and I, I think as well, sort of after the pro-Palestinian protest, after Armistice Day yesterday, uh, I heard that on Twitter, death to all the Jews was trending mm. on UK Twitter. So this is yeah. 2023. We're, we're very close to the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht. Um, and I was pleased to see that the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin had a light shone onto it saying, uh, never again is now. In German, mind you, I, although I, I I think that's what it was saying because <laughs> my German is not that good. But never again is now. So the Brandenburg Gate was lit up that way, you know, in Germany. Uh, meanwhile, in the United Kingdom, uh, we've got death to all the Jews trending on UK Twitter. So as I say, although the, within that march there are people who are genuinely and uh, thoughtfully joining that protest, the, the elements within it that we've talked about before, the very unsavory elements, uh, were not being reported upon sufficiently at the time, I don't think. There was a cancellation uh, by the organisers of the protest. I saw Peter Tatchell had tweeted, yes. and I'll read the whole thing. Stop the war stewards blocked my way at the start of the Palestine march on Saturday. They objected to my placard. And then he quotes them as saying, we're here to stop you. We know what you did at the Ukraine march. Uh, I.e. He's, he's been a troublemaker because he said he'd supported arming Ukraine, which of course they had opposed. And so he he's posted a picture of him holding a sign saying, armistice now, end Israel's occupation and end Hamas's sexist, homophobic, anti-human rights dictatorship. Uh, and that sentiment was not welcome on the march. And I think listeners can draw their own inference for why that might have been. Mm. Well, Tim Stanley calls him a universalist in, in an article in today's Telegraph. Tim Stanley references that, that happened to yeah. uh, Peter Tatchell and calls him a, a, you know, a universalist. He's, he's always been a very principled man all the way from when he first became an activist, which I think may well be in the 70s for gay rights at that time. But he's been as consistent as, 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 as any of those people from that. I don't, dis I don't agree with him on everything by any stretch particularly some of his views on, on LGBTQ plus uh, yeah. issues. However, 
he is a principled person. So he, as you say, cancelled, <laughs> cancelled, hashtag cancelled. Yeah, his writings that have resurfaced give me, I think, in the nineties, give me quite serious pause. But I think on, in in terms of his activism on this issue, he is a universalist. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, so that that's interesting, and I think it it tells you quite a lot. Um, so what do we say the, about the police, Ben? What's your view on the police? Um, we, we well, if you if you don't if you don't want to get sacked from the cabinet, Tom, I'd advise you not to say anything about it. <laughs> well, I mean, the article that struck me, uh, and I think you actually drew my attention to it over the weekend, was was an article in the Daily Mail written by an anonymous member of the Metropolitan Police, uh, essentially yeah. saying that all that we've talked about, about the, the playing favourites within the police force, where there's one group that gets prioritised over the other. This anonymous police officer from within the Metropolitan Police writes this quite powerful article, actually, saying exactly that. And he reminds us of all the instances that, that have happened, the BLM protests, um, and, you know, all, all of the examples that have, that have happened over the last few years. And... Uh, he says at one point, put simply, senior officers are terrified of being accused of racism if they fully enforce the law against pro-Palestinian protesters. So that's what's happening. And that's senior police officers who, who are worrying about that. So I'd, I don't know what you felt of that article. You, I mean, you, that, that article jumped out at you, mm. didn't it, Ben? It did. I mean, it, it just... It again demonstrates that your right to protest in Britain is entirely proportionate to how much backlash your community can cause if you are treated harshly or even if you are just perceived as being treated harshly. There was one photo, uh, and the Met Police said they're not going to take any action against the officer involved. There's a picture of a small child, I guess a four or five-year-old, something like that, um, who's dressed basically as a Hamas fighter, to use the yeah. appalling term. Yeah. Um, and the BBC, are, uh, sorry, the, 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 um, sorry, the police, two police officers sort of posing with a picture uh, with, with this child. And, it, you know, it just occurred to me that in Britain now, if you are a teacher, say, who opposes gay marriage because of your traditional conservative views, you will be referred to prevent for uh, signs of radicalization as a potential extremist. And yet if you go on a march and dress your child effectively as a terrorist, um, the police will stop and pose for a photo with you. Mm. So I, I just, there, there, there's, no, there's no basis to claim that there isn't a two-tier approach to policing. It's entirely dependent on whether your community would kick up a backlash. And the police have made the judgment that white working class people um, will, will not react to scenes of English Defence League types being roughed up, um, but that Muslim communities will react to scenes of pro-Palestine uh, or to be direct pro-Hamas protesters being roughed up. Um, and uh, the problems with that are obvious. Well, it, the the pr problems are, in, are clearly for free speech because if the law is applied like this way, one way with one group and another way with another group, then we don't really know where the free speech lines lie anymore. We don't know 
where the minds are in the minefield now of, of hate speech and of um, what's allowed and what's not allowed. And we can go back and we can read the laws, we can read, um, you know, Article 5 of, of, of whichever act it is and, and uh, say, okay, well, uh, you're not allowed to stir up racial hatred, although they remove that you are allowed to insult. And you look at what, what the police are actually investigating, you line it up against the law and you think, I don't, I don't understand. I just don't know where the lines are. And that's a terrible problem because no one then, we're all blind walking around just waiting to work out whether we've crossed a line that moves depending on who you are, where you are, when you are, which group you're a member of. And that's a, a profoundly worrying um, thing for, for free speech. Um, and, you know, again, in this article from the anonymous Metropolitan Police Officer, he says towards the end that uh, I think it's because of the big recruitment drive, around a third of Met officers now have less than four years' experience, um, which mm. means this is only going to get worse if the, the older officers who understand that the lines need to be drawn consistently between different citizens and different groups, the youngsters don't get that. If you fall into, a, as you say, an Islamic group or an LGBTQ group, you will get the lines drawn very, very, very much, much more generously than if you fall into um, any other group. So we, we've stored up all sorts of confusion for free speech, all sorts of confusion. There's one other point I'd make, well, two other points, actually. I mean, firstly, that for rank and file police, this is all utterly thankless because you're, you're dealing with the, the long-term fallout of the idea of Britain as a community of communities on the front line and you, you've got no power or influence over that level of policy and yet you're on the streets having the fireworks fired at you um <laughs> and and then the police as an institution the met police particularly being criticized in the papers and on social media so uh, i think that's that's just worth saying um that for rank and file police this is utterly thankless and must be pretty horrendous that these things keep going on every saturday uh, but one other point i'd make which is that there are various secular, moderate Muslim groups and ex-Muslim groups who have been campaigning for decades um, for one law for all. And there is a campaign group of that name. Uh, and their focus is on removing Sharia from family arbitration to make sure that Sharia doesn't have any kind of um, backdoor entry into uk law i mean and it, it already has done but they're, they're campaigning to reverse that um and so you also have this really strange scenario where there are people within muslim communities saying no we want to be treated as individual citizens we don't want to be treated as part of a homogenous group we're you know we're not please don't homogenize us muslims have different views about things we we really want to just have our rights as uh, as Muslim women to be protected on the same basis as they would be for a white British woman, we we don't want to be treated as a as a community. We just want to be individual people, and and that for our, that for that to be our relationship to the state, um, and so for all sorts of reasons that we don't have time to go into now, that that has not been the case, um, and there is a need, particularly for Muslim women's groups, uh, to be campaigning for a more secular approach to, to law and for one law for all so that the law is applied equally and then you have at the level of, of public order 
policing and the policing of protest. Um, again, you have this dynamic where people are treated as parts of, of groups or uh, in accordance yeah. with their protected characteristics. Um, so I think it's I think it's all it's all pretty disastrous, and it, it just leads to this growing resentment. And obviously, the Home Secretary has been uh, sacked now in part for for identifying this problem that is perfectly obvious to anyone who can see what's going on on social media. And I think it's worth looking at the flip side of that coin as well, Ben, which is uh, the host culture. And Tim Stanley draws this out in, in his article, which is well worth looking at. His article's entitled, Tribalism is Tearing Britain Apart, It Cannot Go On. Yeah, clearly in that title, you've got the embryo of what we've been talking about, which is these different groups with, with whom the, the, the state contracts. And, and once you get halfway through that article, he, he says, you know, we kind of deconstructed our host culture. And there's one statistic he throws out, uh, which really resonated with me and I was surprised by. The statistic he threw out was that according to a, a recent Ipsos poll, only one third of young Britons know what Rem Remembrance Day commemorates. Only one third of young Britons know what Remembrance Day commemorates. Now, I probably shouldn't be surprised about that, Ben, and I should probably say, okay, yes, I can see the way the trends have, have been have been going over the last few years. But when we say mm -hmm. we want to go back to um, one equal voice for all amongst our citizens, we have to have a culture, a British culture that uh, is understood, that is that we can rally around, that we can uh, find some unity around. And this is why I talk about this other side of the coin, which is that um, actually we've lost a lot of things in the midst of all of what's been going on, all of this focus on, on groups. We've lost a sense of Britain and a sense of, shockingly, Remembrance Day. And it is such a significant moment uh, culturally remembrance day we know this you know this we i, I mean i'm i've learned this from from the age of nothing you know the most important day for our country in terms of um the blood that's been spilt by the people who came before us our grandparents our great-grandparents is armistice day and we've got one third of young britons saying that they don't know what it represents uh, mm. or why we celebrate it. So we've got a real uphill battle, not only in dismantling this way of looking at groups, but also giving something around which culturally we can rally around. Um, and I think that that all of this relates to free speech. In fact, Tim Stanley right in the middle says this, this tribalism relates to free speech very clearly. Uh, and uh, he challenges people on the right uh, who've who've built an he actually says right wingers who built an entire career on opposing cancel culture, which sort of pricked my ears up at that point. Suddenly, mm. want wish to ban a political protest they feel crosses a line. No one really cares about the abstract principle of free speech. They want to control the public sphere. Now, I would, I would argue, I would argue that's not quite right. I don't think that um, here at the Free Speech Union. Uh, we think of free speech as just an abstract principle. But it's right for us to be challenged when we're seeing things that we find very unsavory and we find our, our own reaction is to draw a line of some sort. And we need to be ready to answer that and say, uh, why are you drawing a line here and not drawing a line there? And I think we have. I think we, I think we, 
we talk about that every week, Ben. And I think we are open to being critiqued. Uh, and I certainly think, for us, the fact that on the left we've had um, so many of our gender-critical members, uh, feminists, who, who come from that um, left side of politics, uh, who we've helped, certainly gives me, um, uh, helps me feel more comfortable with that accusation and say, well, that's not quite right, actually. We, we haven't just been on the right. We have genuinely been nonpartisan in all of our, our casework. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's absolutely... I mean, I've probably said this before, but if I had a pound for every time somebody called up the FSU or emailed and said, <laughs> uh, some, some version of, oh, I don't really agree with Toby Young about anything and I don't read The Spectator, but I've, you know, I've, this has happened and I really need your help, I'd be a very rich man. So I, I think that's absolutely borne out by, by the types of cases that we take on. The point about remembrance, I wonder obviously there are issues in schools that we've spoken about at length and indeed we talked about last week but i wonder also if it's just a a remorseless generational changeover and the fact that for instance my generation so i was born in 91 um that i had close family who i knew who i saw every you know all the time who would tell me stories about the Second World War that they'd lived through, that they or their parents had fought in. And so for me, it was very much part of the the living history of my family. Whereas if you're born in 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, uh, or indeed even later for people at university now, you know, you might, you might not know many or any people who were even alive during the second world war or maybe your grandparents i mean i'm trying to do the mental maths quickly tom but me if if you're if you're born in 2005 say and yeah. you're now at university or you're about to head off to university your grandparents probably would have been born in the 1950s or something thereabouts yeah, yeah. so you, you just don't have that you don't have that connection um yeah. and that must be part of it as well Definitely, I think it's living memory, isn't it? The because uh, we don't. It's great grandparents, I think, where you kind of draw the line. Not not many people ever knew their great grandparents. Um, yeah, most people them. at some point remember, or, or yeah, remember their remember their grandparents. Um, so so it does matter that that changeover, that generational changeover at that point and and the only sort of veterans people would would know in families would be from things like the Falklands war of course yeah. or for or from the Iraq war but they but they're all sort of the professional army so so it's a much much smaller piece of the population yeah that they're, they're you know obviously in comparison to a world war they're tiny conflicts tiny tiny and so yeah. they, they don't yeah i mean you, you can you could grow up during the Falklands war or during the war on terror and for your day-to-day life to be completely untouched by those things going on, um, as indeed I, I think is probably the case for most people in Britain today. Um, yeah. And so I, I just, I, I've been thinking out loud about this so over the weekend about how long we can expect a culture of remembrance to persist and you know, what, is, what is the oldest point in history that people are still really moved by the sacrifice of soldiers. And I think it's, it's the first world war. Um, but I, I don't, I, I mean, it's unimaginable to me that people would be sort of emotionally moved by the Boer war 
or 19th century conflicts or Crimea, you know, much less Napoleonic war. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who would be thinking about people from as long ago as that Mm. in terms of remembering their sacrifice, really. Um, And so I I do fear that as well as the sort of the woke capture of school, I mean, that, that is part of it without doubt, but there is just this generational changeover which is troubling to those of us who have a a leg firmly planted in the 20th century in its history well i'll shock you now ben my uh, my grandfather was born in the 1800s and fought in the <laughs> first world war yeah and uh, was an was a warden in north london during the second world war so it was uh, always reminds me i always think he was a bit like sort of the dad's army um yeah. <laughs> reality but i think no i think he was probably actually digging people out of the rubble <laughs> We, we spoke about, you've told me about him before, Tom, because I remember saying that, that that must be the unluckiest moment to be born in history, to mm. be old enough to fight in the First World War and still be active doing a pretty, pretty grim job in the Second World War as well. Um, that's, not, that's not good luck, is it? But I often also think that, um, the, 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 of course, war is utterly dreadful. We know that. That's why the first thing we say on a on a Sunday morning in the common, the Book of Common Prayer is, Lord, give us peace in our time, uh, for good reason. However, you know, wars are times when actually norms are broken down and you can, you can do things that you couldn't do. You meet people you wouldn't meet, all the sort of Americans who came over to, to their bases here in the UK. And you traveled around the world at the, at the expense of the state. You know, so, so it wasn't all utterly ghastly. Uh, it was actually, as some people have said in writing it out, they said we had we had the best time. And actually, when it all stopped, in, you know, in the fifties, it was oh goodness me, we're putting society back together, and it's all getting so stultifying. Bring back what the fun that we had during the forties. Um, so there, there are some surprising ways of looking at it. But uh, sorry, I'm, I'm well going off on a tangent. <laughs> you, you've given me the perfect opening to to read from my favourite Wikipedia entry of Lieutenant General Sir Adrian Paul Ghislaine Carden de Wyatt, VC, KBE, CB, CMG, DSO, um, who was <laughs> shot in the face, head, stomach, ankle, leg, hip and ear, was blinded in his left eye, survived two plane crashes, tunnelled out of a prisoner of war camp and tore off his own fingers when a doctor declined to amputate them. And then describing his experiences in the First World War, he wrote, frankly, I had enjoyed the war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you go you see He'd obviously, yeah. he might have been a little crazy if you wrote that at the end but <laughs> yes i think he must have been. yeah we've gone completely off piece haven't we but but actually yeah, we, we we want to stick with things military to talk about colonel bob stewart mp and the hate crime conviction that he's now appealing against don't we Yes, indeed. So uh, this was actually um, a, a case that was mentioned in our in our newsletter, and uh, he's a, he's a he's a veteran and a Tory MP, Bob Stewart. He was convicted of a hate crime uh, last week or the week before last, uh, after being deemed to have committed a racially aggravated public order offence. Uh, I think he was talking about Bahrain, and it was in the street, and he was being heckled, and it went back and forth, back and forth. And at one point, he turned around and said, uh, go back to Bahrain. And this was enough for the Crown Prosecution Service uh, to pursue uh, him. And of course, 
I think I've been reading about it over the weekend. I think if you if you read that, go back to Bahrain, that does sound quite insulting, quite potentially offensive, w- whatever. Um, but if you look at the video clip, it, it's just a heckle. It's just an argument in the street. Uh, he doesn't. He, he's getting. He's receiving as 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 much as he's giving. And um, however, the Crown Prosecution Service picked up the case. They ran with it, and he's been convicted. Uh, so there is a, a crowdfunder at the moment on the go, and I checked it this morning, uh, which it's already raised over eighteen thousand pounds. A crowdfunder for an appeal against this conviction, which does seem really unjust. The, 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 the conviction really does feel unjust when you look at the video clip, uh, and as though it's a sort of a, a, a witch hunt against him, particularly. Uh, so we will put a link to the to the crowdfunder in the show notes. Um, we put another link in the in the in the weekly newsletter. Um, but what struck me uh, in that story, Ben, is what the opposition said. So the opposition immediately um, called for Rishi Sunak to act against what they describe as the totally unacceptable and dangerous behaviour of the backbencher. However, he resigned the whip to avoid yeah. Rishi having to be in that difficult situation. However, it, what I thought was, look, look at the video. Yes, the CPS pursued it. Yes, he got convicted. But I would have hoped someone on the back benches would have, would have said, do you know what? This is, not, this is not right. This doesn't feel right. I think we need to stand up for the principles here of free speech. Uh, this doesn't go over the line, which we talked about earlier. So difficult to know what the line is when the police are uh, are putting it here for one group and here for another. But you look at the video, and there's there really is is he's it's just an argument in the street. And um, I would have hoped someone on the opposition benches would have stepped in and said, "We stand with um, Bob Stewart, and we will support his appeal as well." Well, it's just not how it works. I mean, it, all the headline that people see will will be conservative MP convicted of hate crime. And from that point on, you become toxic. Mm. And so, best of luck in his appeal. And it's great to see how much money has been raised already. Um, but, but, but that's just the way these things work. One of the things about cancel culture generally, I'd say as well, is that it's like the rules of frontline politics have been brought into day-to-day life and workplaces. Um, where it, it, it's that, you know, one gaffe from a politician can be career-ending, mm. or used to be, um, and, and it's the same now in the office as well. Um, so it's like the sort of ruthlessness of, um, of, of frontline politics has come into day-to-day life. Um, but it, it's just, it's one of those things, again, I mean, we've talked about policing pretty extensively over, over recent weeks, but you just have to wonder, why is this the, why is this the priority? And we know why it's the priority, of course. But it's completely yeah. ludicrous. And we've had lots of messages of support, actually, that uh, that we'll be passing on to him, um, yeah. including from uh, members of the armed forces or, or former members of the armed forces, um, which which is heartening. But it, again, it just shouldn't it shouldn't ever have got anywhere near this point. But I do agree with you, Ben, that I'm being naive when I say, why did the opposition, why is there not any opposition to this on the other side of the benches? But on the other hand, I think if you rolled the clock back 30 years, and I would also say never say never in the future, but if you rolled the clock back 30 years, there would have been more principled uh, politicians, voices, independent voices uh, on the back benches. I'm thinking of people like Tony Benn. 
even people like Michael Foote, you know, not all on the left of politics, I think they would have stood up and said, there's something wrong here. There's something unjust here. Um, and of course, we know who would have done it on the right. You know, brave people like uh, Margaret Thatcher would have would have stood up and said, this is, this is wrong. Um, and I know what you mean when you say times have changed. And I know what you mean when you say this is how it works. You don't want to lose the whip. You don't want to, 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 to reduce your career in, in, in the House of Commons to, to ashes just by supporting the wrong thing where you don't know what the outcome is. But there were people and there have been people for whom they would be willing to say no to their career. I mean, David Davis has quit multiple times on point, points of principle. It's just such a rare thing nowadays. I, I hope we get it back. Well, shall we, we have something quite different now that we want to talk about, um, which is an article in Unheard by Ayan Hersey Ali, the ex-Muslim turned atheist, fellow traveller, member of the New Atheist Movement. And she has come out with the rather startling approximation that she is converting to Christianity. And she sets out the reasons why in this fascinating article uh, published on the the 13th of November, but that's the day we're speaking today, and I'm sure I read it two days ago. Anyway, it was published over the weekend. Um, And she essentially says, I mean, read it in full for yourself, but she essentially says that atheism, secularism, humanism, the idea that human values are universal across time, culture, place, that these things are not enough to hold Western civilization together, that, in her words, atheism can't equip us for civilizational war. And this has brought her, somewhat improbably, to Christianity. And interestingly, I was speaking to somebody a week or two ago called Justin Brierley, who has done a podcast on the rise and fall and the aftermath of the new atheist movement. And, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, those figures who were selling millions of books in the late 2000s. And the way in which members of that movement are starting to fumble their way back to Christianity. And part of the reason why is that New Atheism, the argument goes, has levelled all of the last vestiges of, of Christianity in a broader culture and allowed the woke movement to take over as the, uh, the ethos of our, of our civilization, of our nation state. What do you make of that, Tom? Well, a couple of things you said there. Um, first of all, I agree with you that the article is extremely interesting. So Ayan Hershey Ali uh, has gone on a really interesting journey. You mentioned you were surprised that she's ended up going to Christianity. I, I, I don't think it's a surprise. I think her journey from uh, a moderate Muslim family, I think in Somalia as a child, through to a herself yeah. becoming very extreme uh, as she got older, through to her becoming a reformed Muslim, uh, sort of uh, believing in, in Western values, uh, but also holding to her, her Islamic faith. And she's drifted into atheism, I think, gradually from that. But when you've got the strong narratives from, from that early on in childhood, 
something like the strong narratives of, of Christianity makes sense to me, um, which is part of what her point um, she quotes at one point in the article G.K. Chesterton, when men choose mm. not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become mm. capable of believing in anything. Um, and she goes on to say, you know, to win the hearts and the minds of Muslims in the West, we have to offer them something more than TikTok videos, um, which is, uh, a, a, you know, a, another way of turning around the G.K. Chesterton quote. And I think it comes back to a deeper truth uh, that you touched on there as well, Ben, which is that stories, foundational stories, really matter. It goes back to the deeper truth of Remembrance Day that we spoke about earlier, Armistice Day. Why did we get distracted earlier in our conversation and and talk more deeply about it? It's because foundational stories, whether of us as individuals, us as members of a family, us as members of a nation, they define us and they make us who we are. It's why I think people like Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, they attack works of art. They attack the highest achievements of our culture because they attack the heart of it. You know, that's what we do on a Friday evening. We go and see a play or an opera or on a Saturday. We go and we enjoy the 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 high points of our culture because they tell us our story. They tell us our narrative and our narrative is worth listening to. And I think in a sort of religious, in a religious world, uh, that makes a lot of sense as well. Uh, that if we've got a, as we do, we talked about on, on the march, we've got an issue with, with some Islamist uh, extremism in our midst, then the way that's going to get tackled is not by nothing. You know, an empty void of, of, of atheism, I think. Rich stories um, need to come to the fore. Um, they, they could be non-Christian. Of course they could be. I'm not, I'm not saying it necessarily needs to be Christian. But it doesn't surprise me, I suppose, that she's gone on this journey and reached this point. It has to be something more than a neutral state encouraging people to be atomized individuals. I think that's, that's, the, that's the point. I, but someone... I think a few people have pointed out in her article that the words Bible, Jesus, and Testament do not appear. <laughs> so this is, I, I would say, a conversion that I would imagine that lots of Christians might find somewhat concerning because it's, and I say that as somebody, by the way, who has in, in agreement with what she said, basically. Uh, or, or with the thrust of it, um, because it—it's not really grounded. It seems to me in personal conviction or belief. It's more about trying to find a formula, a glue that will hold society together. And goodness knows we need that. Um, but it, but there is this slight detachment from scriptural mm. Christianity or Christian belief uh, as it has been passed on in the conventional way for generations uh it, it's more it's more about finding the, the the sort of sociological formula that will allow western civilization to go on am i allowed to have a moment of uh of a biblical discussion there uh ben because uh, I, I hear what you're saying uh, talking about someone who, who who who's heading towards christianity sees herself now as a christian and doesn't refer to all the buzzwords Interestingly, there are big moments in the scriptures themselves where quite deliberately, to make a point, uh, the big buzzwords, as it were, like God or um, 
Jesus or faith are not spoken about directly. The point is made in a circuitous way and it's more powerful for it. Uh, I mean, the example I always give is Ecclesiastes, which essentially takes God out of the picture and says, what, what is the world like without God? Well, this is it. The book of James yeah. has, been, has been, in the New Testament, has been debated for hundreds of years because um, since the Reformation, people have said it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with this idea of in faith alone. It doesn't fit with Paul's uh, view of Christianity. Um, but it does, actually. When you study it, when you look at it, it does fit. It just takes longer to see what he's saying. It's, it takes long. Book of, book, book of the, the letters of the Hebrews, same. Very different tone, very different approach. So I hear what you're saying, but I feel uh, it's almost, it is a personal journey, and it, it, it's one that people do in different ways. And, and that hitting the, the, the points, it's more the substance, it's more the deeper things that she's saying, which I think do resonate. Um, and ideas of how Christianity has influenced uh, all the wonderful things we've, we see in the West. And it's out of Christianity that we have freedom of conscience. Uh, and out of Christianity that we have so many of the freedoms that we have today. So that's my moment. I, I'll stop there, Ben. I don't want to uh, sound like I've turned into some quasi-biblical. Uh, <laughs> no, that's fine. I, well, I think listeners may be able to tell that when you were young, you, you, there was a real uh, <laughs> opportunity, or should I say danger, that you were going to become a preacher. Uh, whereas I was a very, <laughs> I was a very obnoxious um, Richard Dawkins quoting new atheist at the time as a as a teenager um and i'm now a, a lapsed atheist we're good friends so I, I do i get you know i really want to agree actually with what she said in this article but i just i have this this nagging doubt that actually you can't reconfirm these things without having an individual belief in christianity and i don't really see how that Mm. That could be revived in present conditions. Obviously, present conditions will not persist forever. Um, but the conclusion of, or rather, actually, let's say the premise of her argument that all of these things are uh, culturally contingent, that the, the liberties we enjoy, the freedoms we enjoy, they are contingent on uh, liberalism emerging in a Christian context. I think that's right. I don't. I don't really see how that could be seriously disputed, although my 15-year-old self would absolutely reject that in a torrent of uh, adolescent atheistic rage. Um, but upon sober, mature reflection, I think that point is uh, irrefutable. Yeah. I, I find this whole discussion fascinating because, uh, and I still, I haven't finished Dominion yet, I'm afraid, which uh, Ayan mentions in her yeah. article. That's a great book. Yeah, yeah. It's a real big, deep dive, isn't it, into the sort of yeah. the golden thread of Christianity, or even you can call it something else. But the the, the um, undeniable influence of Christianity, you know, the way the the Roman, the Western Empire of Rome folded into the into the Catholic Church, for example, in all sorts of ways, just as the British Empire folded into the City of London. Um, I find it. I find the the paradigms that get set up in that book fascinating. I, uh, I read Dominion, or a big chunk of it, on a long train journey from Exeter, travelling north. And uh, there was somebody, as people do increasingly now, playing music, loosely defined, on loudspeaker, 
somewhere <laughs> up the carriage. And I, I was not entertaining very Christian thoughts about that person, Tom, I have to say. Anyway, this is nothing to do with free speech. It's nothing, but, it's nothing, but we, we should talk about the events we've got coming up, just to, to remind yes, you yeah. of some of the events we've got. We've got really relevant to what we've discussed today on the 23rd of November, we've got an event called Getting the Balance Right, Free Speech and the Right to Protest in the Current Moment uh, for FSU members. And the details for that are on um, our website. And then six days later, on the November the 29th, we've got uh, colonization. Uh, this free, it's down the southwest. And Ben, I think you're speaking at this. It's called colonization, freeing our minds or dangerous group thinks. So it's the first time no, we've gone down to Exeter. I'm I'm not speaking at it. Oh. Um, you have an even an even better offer, uh, which is <laughs> Professor Doug Stokes, who will be talking on that subject. So I'm going to go and meet members and listen, because I went to university there. But I'm speaking at Exeter this week on Friday at a debating society event on This House Regrets the Rise of Woke Culture. Um, but I'll be at that Exeter event and uh, at the end of the month. And yeah, Doug Stokes will be there. He'll be, uh, he'll be a really good speaker. So do come along to that. Yeah. And remember that uh, it does not cost very much to join the Free Speech Union at all. It starts at around about £5 a month uh, on, our, on our monthly um, on our monthly discount rate, uh, or £29.99 per year. So do sign up if you're not a member. But I think that's all for today, isn't it, Ben? It is. I, the final thing I'd say, on that £5, you know, you chuck a fiver in, you set up your direct debit, and uh, and then if you're sacked from your job and you need a £50,000 legal bill crowdfunded, yeah. it will be a wise investment. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, and it's not even half a Starbucks coffee, five pounds a month nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And we will speak to you next week. Bye bye.